recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 29, 2015, and we are at the home of Bruce and Nancy Bond in Northeast Georgia. We, uh, <laughs> this is the first leg of a road trip that we expect to last at least three weeks, probably longer. And, well, we had some setbacks, but that's okay. We're here. And hopefully we will continue with this road trip. We, we won't know until um, probably early next week if we'll be able to complete the whole trip as planned. Yahweh willing, we will. We don't like to retreat, and, and we don't intend to, that's for sure. I wanted to, um, I wanted to develop this particular program further than, than I have, and it's not that I think it's insufficient. It, it's just that I would like to make more formal notes. We really didn't get a chance to do that. We were supposed to be in northeast Georgia yesterday afternoon, and, and we didn't make it until 30 minutes ago. So here we are. This is Positive Christianity in the Third Reich, Part 1. It, it's... um planned to be probably a four or even five-part series. I, I've already pretty much broken it up and, 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 and determined what I am going to discuss. Positive Christianity in the Third Reich is a book written in 1937 by an established German theologian whom we will discuss shortly. There were reasons for my doing this. The first reason is because, once again, and I've done it in the past, I've sought to take a stand against secular white nationalists who have attempted to co-opt history basically for themselves and, and to corrupt history and, and present a portrait of history that's somehow favorable to these pagan Cretans that's just simply untrue. And, and what the secular white nationalists do with history is just as bad as what the Jews have done with history. There is, in, in all reality, there is really no difference. One side is as bad as the other. They can't have history. We at Christiani will seek to present a true version of history, whether it's favorable to Christianity or not, and at the same time establish the truth of Christianity and how all of history's great white men of the last several hundred years, certainly sought, even with all of their own faults, to stand upon a Christian foundation. And the speech given at the famous Hofbrau House in Munich on April 12, 1922, 
Adolf Hitler had said, and finally, we were also the first to point the people on any large scale to a danger which insinuated itself into our midst, a danger which millions failed to realize and which will nonetheless lead us all into ruin, the Jewish danger. And today, people are saying yet again that we were agitators. I would like here to appeal to a greater than I, Count Lurchenfeld. Lurchenfeld was actually a German politician and one-time prime minister of Bavaria. He said in the last session of the Landtag, Landstag probably, that his feeling as a man and a Christian prevented him from being an anti-Semite. And of course, we would all have issue with that, or we all should. And Adolf Hitler responded to that by continuing and saying, I say, my feeling as a Christian points me to my Lord and Savior as a fighter. It points me to the man who once in loneliness, surrounded only by a few followers, recognized these Jews for what they were and summoned men to the fight against them and who, God's truth, was greatest not as a sufferer but as a fighter. Hitler displays his intimate acquaintance with the New Testament, even though we understand in Christian identity that Hitler didn't have what we would consider a perfect understanding of Christianity. He knew, nevertheless, that Christ was opposed to these Jews and that the Jews were ever opposed, what were always opposed, and oppose themselves to anything godly. Hitler continued by saying, in boundless love as a Christian and as a man, I read through the passage which tells us how the Lord at last rose in his might and seized the scourge to drive out of the temple the brood of vipers and of adders. How terrific was his fight for the world against the Jewish poison. And it's a signal um, moment in the gospel that we should all realize that Christ forcibly drove the vipers, the serpents, out of the temple several times, of course. Today, after 2,000 years, with deepest emotion, I recognize more profoundly than ever before the fact that it was for this that he had to shed his blood upon the cross. As a Christian, I have no duty to allow myself to be cheated, but I have the duty to be a fighter for truth and justice. And as a man, I have the duty to see to it that human society does not suffer the same catastrophic collapse as did 
the civilization of the ancient world some 2,000 years ago, a civilization which was driven to its ruin through this same Jewish people. And, of course, that's a, um, a simplification of history, but the Jews certainly were a large contributor to the disintegration of the Roman Empire. They certainly were a primary ingredient in the, the, the decay and disintegration of the great Rome. Of course, it is not only Christian to stand against the Antichrist, but it is the Christian duty to be a so-called anti-Semite. And the politician Lurchenfeld couldn't bring himself to do it. He, like Jews since, like Christians since way before the time of Martin Luther, as we have seen here at Christagenia, were fooled by the Jews themselves into believing that today's Jews are these people of the, the, the Old Testament, and history proves that they certainly are not. Therefore, it is the Christian duty to be a so-called anti-Semite in the way in which the word is used today, which, of course, we all know the Jews aren't even really Semites. They rejected and killed Christ. And as the Apostle Paul, Paul attests, they are contrary to all men. Therefore, standing against the Jew is the will of God for Christians, a will expressed by Christ himself in two different chapters of the Revelation. Adolf Hitler also realized this. And at the end of chapter 2 of his first volume of Mein Kampf, he quite confidently said, and so, I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. In standing against the Jew, I am defending the handiwork of the Lord. Here we are going to present a lengthy paper. And it will probably take a month of Fridays to get through it. It is entitled Positive Christianity in the Third Reich by one professor, Caius Fabricius. He has a first initial. It's D. I'm not sure what it stands for. Uh, I'll have to beg pardon for that. And originally published in Dresden by Hermann Puschel in 1937. The complete text has recently been posted at the Christogenia.org Mein Kampf Project. Presenting this paper, we hope to accomplish several things. We have often asserted that National Socialism was founded on Christian principles. Of course, the New Age Judaized denominational Christians and traditional Catholics and Anglicans alike would strongly object to that assertion. Oh, Hitler wasn't a Christian. He didn't go to church. He wasn't a choir boy. He didn't um, carry a prayer book under his arm. He didn't ask everybody he met if they were saved this week or, or if they knew Jesus. The New Age pagans 
the Odinists, the Wotanists, or whatever the hell they would like to call themselves this week, would also object to that assertion. After all, they should know all about Christianity since they learned about the Bible and all of its faults directly from the Jews themselves. We would contend that all of these people object to the assertion that National Socialism was founded on Christian principles because they do not understand anything about true Christianity. Therefore, we hope to illustrate how National Socialism as a political philosophy was indeed Christian in its character. And Professor Fabricius, here in this paper, did well in that regard, even though we won't accept his theology as being perfect either. And, and we will see the flaws to that even before we begin. Over the course of this presentation, we also hope to discuss further how nationalism is Christian and how socialism is Christian. And we already have lengthy articles in those regards at Christogenia. However, we, we must warn that true socialism is not to be confused with Marxism or with what is now known as communism. Those are Jewish perversions of true socialism. In the same manner that capitalism is Jewish and it's a Jewish perversion of what the founders of this nation, of the United States, had called free enterprise. Even in um, Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, we don't find the word capitalism. We shall measure the Christian character of National Socialism by its policies and actions, and not by its lip service to the organized churches or to its displays of traditional so-called Christian language or decorations or icons. It is policy and action which makes a Christian. It's not statues. It's not language. It's not church buildings that make a Christian. It's policy and action that make a Christian. Today we live in a corrupt and perverted society. And this corrupt and perverted society we live in has plenty of church buildings and plenty of statues and, and plenty of Christian language, but very little Christianity. We shall also describe some of the theological faults of the author of this paper, who was a prominent theologian in his own right, but who had fallen into the trap of universalism. And for that reason, he tried to find the same God in every world religion while also asserting that Christ could replace every world religion in the hearts of all the world's peoples. Of course, that thinking is actually contrary to the Bible. That thinking is actually the product of the universalist Catholic Church dogma. And of course, many of those races that 
Europeans have tried to bring Christianity to shouldn't even be considered people. There are some further caveats before we proceed with the series, and I'll probably repeat them. Identity Christians, and, and we at Christagenia, do not worship statism. We neither worship Adolf Hitler. We do not worship Adolf Hitler. We do not worship National Socialism. We do not worship the NSDAP. There have been clowns. There there have been fools who have accused us of this. And in reality, it is they themselves who worship the Jewish capitalist paradigm and the illusion of freedom which it is offered to Anglo-Americans who are today enslaved by Jews. These flag-waving stooges are all well-deserving of the fruits of their actions these past 200 years. Killing their own brethren on behalf of the international Jew. How Christian that could be. What we seek to do is not to worship men or the political and economic paradigms of men, but to correct the historical record and to present that record in a manner in which all Christians may better understand it and repent of their evil allegiances. Before we begin, we should know a little more about Caius Fabricius himself. In order to do that, we shall quote from a paper, actually a 200 and something page paper, a lengthy paper, it's actually a book, entitled Theology and the End of Doctrine. And it was written by a woman. Her name is Christine Helmer. And although Ms. Helmer is a rather modern, and we would consider her to be only a so-called theologian, her assessment of Fabricius's theology is nevertheless an accurate one when we compare it to his own work. Even here, as we shall see, in positive Christianity. Although we cannot agree with all of Helmer's conclusions in other respects, such as her characterization of National Socialism itself, here is what she has to say about Fabricius. From this we will learn that Fabricius was a long-established theologian, long before Hitler rose to power we will learn something substantial about his theology, and we shall see that in his beliefs, he himself was following in the footsteps of earlier German theologians. With this, we shall read from pages 44 and 45 of Helmer's book, Theology and the End of Doctrine. Caius Fabricius is regarded as a faithful expositor of Rietschel's thought. Rietschel was an earlier German theologian. He published the first critical edition of Rietschel's Compendium of Theology, entitled Christian Perfection, in 1924, and edited it with a commentary. Fabricius joined the debate concerning Rietschel's problematic view of mysticism in a journal article published in 1910. Fabricius, like 
Reichler, I'm trying to pronounce these names right, but I'm a Yankee. I can't help it. Wanted to restore mysticism's place at the center of Lutheran Christianity. But he moved beyond Reichler by insisting that mysticism understood as the central power of Christianity was the ground for establishing the universal validity of Christianity. To make this argument, Fabricius needed to reformulate Rachel's position on mysticism. In the process of doing so, he appealed to the nature-spirit metaphysic. But Fabricius's use of this category, as I, meaning Helmer, the author we are quoting, as I will argue, was marked by bifurcation. Nature is gradually separated from spirit in his account, and spirit eventually comes to occupy a distinctly metaphysical status that is over and against nature. And we can understand how we could come to some of those conclusions from Paul, but we see, most importantly, in, in Helmer's assessment, that Fabricius, like Rachel before him, Fabricius was a universalist, and because he believed that the Christian God was the true God, that the core mystic portion of Christianity could be seen in every religion of the world, even though those religions weren't Christian. And, and that's a universalist sort of like along the lines of, of the, um, the Jew Philo, the Alexandrian Jew Philo Judahius, who 2,000 years before Fabricius nearly had, had um, attempted to syncretize the pagan philosophies with Christianity and find the Christian, or, or with, I'm sorry, not with Christianity, with the Hebrew Bible and find the God of the Hebrew Bible in the pagan philosophies. So, so this sort of universalism, even though Philo's flavor of it was limited to the, um, the Greek, Greco-Roman oikumene, this sort of universalism has been around for a long time, and even Wesley Swift followed in these footsteps. Back to um, Christine Helmer. Before going further here, it must be recognized that two decades after Fabricius introduced his argument about mysticism and Christian universalism, meaning two decades after 1910, he became actively involved in national socialist politics. As a professor of theology in Berlin in 1935, he published a book defending the Christian religion as compatible with national socialist ideology. It was simultaneously published in English under the title Positive Christianity and in Japanese. That's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. This was all still in the future when Fabricius published his important 1910 essay on mysticism and justification. But in the story I am telling, this is the first hint of the darkness that would eventually overtake the world, darkness that Barth would so courageously address in his theology. And we won't address Barth, the, the apologist for the Jews, evidently. 
1910 article demonstrates Fabricius's conviction that the central power of Christianity resides in the mystical relationship of the believer with God. That's the necessary universalist position because they don't understand the husband-wife, God-elect relationship of Yahweh with the children of Israel. In his words, this relationship is the way in which the whole human person is completely oriented and attuned to God. This is the goal of all religions, in Fabricius's words. And so, all, and so Christianity has the potential to extend over all of humanity, he says. Christianity introduced a new principle into history, which Fabricius identifies as the mystical and which drives toward the goal of history. With other theologians in the German intellectual tradition, Fabricius thus shares the idea that the telos, which is the end or the issue or the result, the telos of the historical development of Christianity is to become the universal religion. Fabricius appreciated Rachel's theological system for keeping both aspects of Christian life in view. The forgiveness of the sins of the individual, characteristic of the early Rachel, and the Christian universal telos in Rachel's later view. But Fabricius was aware of the tension between the two, and he maintained that Rachel did not stay true to his early interest in individual experience. Instead, giving up on the individual, said Fabricius, in order to emphasize the universal idea for the kingdom of God. It was Fabricius's aim to correct Rachel's increasingly singular focus by reframing the individual aspect by means of a concept of mysticism. And because I didn't think that Rachel or Reichle were important to this conversation, I didn't include any details concerning those men, and I won't. So Fabricius, being a universalist, sought to justify his universalism through what he considered to be Christian mysticism, by which he can see the same God in each and every historic religion of every people. And therefore, he could promote Christianity as the expression of a universal religion. We also see that Fabricius was in many respects merely following and attempting to reconcile and refine the thoughts of theologians before him. We cannot agree with Fabricius's universalism, and we would steadfastly refute the idea that the God of the Bible is the God of any other races or religions other than what we would call white Christians. However, it is clear as the world and even as theologians would generally measure themselves, that Fabricius certainly does not embody the perception of evil, which is generally attributed to so-called Nazis. Fabricius, 
who took up the cause of National Socialism as early as 1930 and before Hitler came to power, before the NSDAP came to power, Fabricius had no problem seeing the Christian foundation of National Socialism, and that is where he did his best. That is what we believe he can be most valued for, and he explains it in this book, Positive Christianity in the Third Reich. So with that, we will present the foreword to the book. I didn't have the time to prepare any notes for this in advance, other than what I've just read and, and the quotes from Helmer's book and, and the, the 1922 Adolf Hitler speech. Of course, there are many other quotes and, and, and things that Adolf Hitler said throughout his career, and not only Hitler, but other National Socialist officers and, and Dr. Goebbels, which go beyond the required proof to demonstrate that these men certainly were Christians. I recently had words, actually in comments on, on um, Brett Light's Expel the Parasite website, I recently had words with, with a, um, a, a clown that considers himself, he calls himself um, Flammenwerfer. I, I think that means, um, I, I'm not going to say what I think it means. I know what it really means, but he, he really, um, it, it means flamethrower. But, but I think that Nietzsche's hindquarters are where the flames are thrown from, and Flammenwerfer spits them up. That these um, pagans actually take all the words of, of Hitler and Goebbels showing that, that they were um, certainly Christian men and say, oh, they were only just trying to um, make the, the general masses happy. That they didn't really mean any of those words. They were just trying to make people happy and, and get the popular support of most people that were Christians. And then they take all the words where Adolf Hitler basically characterized pagans as clowns, and he did that over and over again. And then they say, oh, well, that's only aimed at Ludendorff. That doesn't mean all pagans. So, so what they really do, that these secular white nationalists and these pagan white nationalists, is they take the words of Adolf Hitler and turn them on their head and assert that the man is a hypocrite. And they assert that all these prominent national socialists were hypocrites because they really didn't mean any of those references to the Christian God. That they didn't really mean any of those um, that those statements concerning God or Christ. They were really pagans at heart, but they're just trying to make the masses happy. But what they don't understand is that you could strip away all those references that Adolf Hitler ever made to, to God. You could strip away all the references that Adolf Hitler ever made to the Bible, and he made many in his writings. He made many in Mein Kampf. He used many examples from the Bible. He knew the Bible. He made analogies based on Scripture. You could strip all that away, and Adolf Hitler would still be a Christian because National Socialism was founded on Christian philosophies. And Christianity is policy, 
and action. Christianity is not words and decorations. Words and decorations mean nothing without policy and action. With that, we will turn to the forward of positive Christianity in the Third Reich. Caius Fabricius. There is much misconception in the world today with respect to the position of Christianity in the Third Reich. Opinion being rife that an anti-Christian attitude or paganism is at the moment predominant in Germany. These were the considerations which led me to issue an English edition of my book, which I will translate the title of as Positive Christianity in the New State. So we see that the supposition that the, the, these national socialists were pagans is as old as 1935, and it actually goes back before that. And that's based on Jewish slander against the National Socialists. And that's the reason for this booklet, to show that these things are lies, that these people are not pagans. And the words of Hitler and Goebbels, prove that over and over and over again. And their policies and actions are congruent, about as congruent as you could get to a state institution of the Christian religion. It wasn't perfect. If it was perfect, it would have been the kingdom of heaven. Only Jesus Christ can bring us the fourth right. This book is in no way an official statement. The only official book on National Socialism is Adolf Hitler's Mein Kampf. Official documents are also the program of the National Socialistic Party and the laws of the state, which all supported Christianity explicitly. I, for my part, have simply endeavored, meaning Fabricius, right? I'm reading his words. Have simply endeavored as a theologian to give in these pages a clear and scientific exposition of the substance of Christianity in relation, in its relation to the substance of national socialism. The point of view, however, thus set forth in this little book is not only my own but is shared by millions of German people who are real Christians and at the same time good national socialists unswervingly loyal to their Fuhrer Adolf Hitler. And the last section of this book, which we won't get to for a few weeks, deals with what we would consider to be Hitler worship and refutes it, even though I don't think the refutation was very well displayed publicly, it does refute it. The German edition of this book was published in 1935. Since then, the German situation, the fundamental principles of the National Socialist State, 
and the attitude of the Fuhrer towards Christianity have remained unchanged. A few days before writing these lines, the Fuhrer in his speech to the Reichstag on 30th of January said that in all humility he thanked Almighty God for his grace manifested in the uprising of the German folk. He said, too, in speaking of his personal experiences, that he had had three unusual friends nearly all his life. In his youth, poverty, then sorrow at the collapse of his people, meaning after the First World War, and finally, anxiety for the right. This is the Führer's unchanged attitude, one conforming both to a Christian and to a heroic figure. Thus may this little book serve to spread the truth throughout the world. I hope that my attempt at its expression will be understood abroad, and I should be glad to receive any comments on what I have said from friends in other countries. And that's... An annotation is added to that with the name of Caius Fabricius in Berlin, February of 1937. This book is split into several parts. The first part, after the introduction explains um, the religious policy of National Socialism, and that's broken into several parts, and that, that they include what National Socialists accept and what they reject, and what they reject is presented first. We should get through that this evening. First, we will present Caius Fabricius's introduction to positive Christianity in the Third Reich. We demand liberty for all religious denominations in the state so far as they are not a danger to it and do not militate against the morality and moral sense of the German race. And I, I, I touched on this idea in um, a program I did last Sunday with Sven Longshanks and explained how if secular white nationalists do not accept basic Christian morality, then they're not white nationalists. If they don't accept basic Christian morals, whether they want to call those morals Christian or not is immaterial. If they don't accept the ideas which lay in the Ten Commandments, then they can't be white nationalists because they don't really care about white people. If you don't accept the basic precepts of firm morals, immovable morals, morals which cannot be changed, then you can't be a white nationalist. You're a liar. If you call yourself a white nationalist, you lie because you do not act in the interests of white people. If you would sleep with your brother's wife, if you would 
commit acts of sodomy, you are not acting in the interests of white people. The first thing that made Adolf Hitler a Christian, not the only thing, the first thing was his understanding of the need for sound and strict Christian morality to be practiced by the nation, that it would never rise from the ashes of the Weimar Republic, the perversions, the prostitution, the the homosexuality promoted by the Jews in the Weimar Republic, Germany would never rise from that without sound Christian morals. And now it's without... Without Adolf Hitler, Germany has once again, just like New York and Tel Aviv, sunk to the pits of hell. Just look up, just Google Folsom Berlin for the proof of that. And and that's everything that Adolf Hitler had fought against. The party is such stands for positive Christianity, but does not bind itself in the matter of creed to any particular confession. It combats the Jewish materialist spirit within us and without us, inside of us, among us, and outside of us, and is convinced that our nation can achieve permanent health from within only on the principle, the common interest before the self-interest. And that's the core of Christianity, is the common interest before the self-interest. He who will be great among you shall be your servant. Take up your cross and follow me. He died on behalf of his people. We should commit our lives to our people, the common interest before self-interest. And the evils of the Jewish materialist spirit are pretty evident everywhere in the world today. And we will discuss them at greater length later. Such is point 24 of the program of of the German National Socialistic Party. Since 1920, this has been the unchanged and unwavering guiding principle of the movement with respect to its attitude towards religion. And since 1933, the inviolable expression of what it is to be as law to the whole German nation. Adolf Hitler, its Führer and Chancellor, has repeatedly affirmed this article, especially the main clause relating to positive Christianity. This was particularly the case in the three notable speeches made by him in the year 1934. Namely, on January 30th, August 17th, and August 26th. On these three solemn occasions, the Fuhrer stated in words that left no doubt as to their meaning, that National Socialism affirmed positive Christianity. Moreover, as a further explanation of his statement, Adolf Hitler declared that by positive Christianity, He meant the Christianity of the two great churches, the Evangelical and the Roman Catholic, both of which are represented in Germany. He also called upon these Christian churches to do everything in their power to make 
the moral forces of the gospel message effectual influences in the life of the German nation. At the same time, however, he made it perfectly plain that he had nothing in common with people in bare skins, with those, namely, who recalling the old Germanic tribes would foist neo-pagan cult experiments upon the German folk. <clears throat> On other occasions, too, as for the instance, as for instance, in his historically remarkable speech of May 21st, 1935, the Fuhrer emphatically rejected the godlessness of Bolshevism, contrasting it with the fact that in National Socialistic Germany, the churches have not been turned into places of secular amusement, and that there's all sorts of absolute proof that the Jew, Jewish Bolsheviks who had usurped Russia from the Tsars and turned it into the Soviet Union did leave the synagogues open. They left the synagogues open. There's proof of that at the Mein Kampf project at Christiania. And they closed the churches and turned them either into storehouses or theaters or worse, and even if the Fuhrer does speak on occasion, such as these, of a new national socialistic Weltanschauung or worldview, he means neither a new religion nor a new godlessness, but simply everything that is the result of national consciousness, of the ties of comradeship, and of the heroic attitude of the national socialistic German with respect to his mode of life, and his views of the world surrounding him. To these may be added everything needed for the reconstruction of man's inner life, and this includes in no small degree the forces of positive Christianity. Thus, the fundamental lines to be followed are defined here clearly and simply there remains, however, the task of tracing the program of National Socialism with regard to religion in every possible direction and with attention to the minutest details. Hitherto, this has not been attempted in a manner sufficiently comprehensive and exhaustive. And yet, how vitally important it is to form a picture of the religion of the German folk in all its details, and to consider the development of its religious forces in various directions. And just in an era of new beginnings, such as we are now experiencing, 1935, when he wrote the, the German version, 1937, when he wrote the English version, there was no war yet. Germany had risen from the ashes of the Weimar Republic. Germany was a vibrant economy and a vibrant nation where volunteerism was employed so that every German who could would be engaged in lifting his fellows from poverty 
and from the demise that came upon Germany after Versailles. That's the revival that Fabricius is talking about here. There's no war yet. Things are looking up for Germany. The English and the Americans haven't entirely agreed to destroy their brethren in Germany on behalf of the Jew as far as 1937 is concerned. And just in an era of new beginnings such as we are now experiencing, it is indeed doubly important for religious principles to be worked out on a perfectly clear basis and in every possible direction. For during times such as these, when the inner life of the nation is in the process of being revolutionized, how easy it is for a certain confusion of mind to arise, whereby many a trend of thought has come to the fore that had once already existed, only, however, to fall into oblivion where it has remained until now, when the auspicious moment for its reappearance and the realization of its aims would appear to have arrived. And if we read our Old Testaments, every time the children of Israel had success, every time they were successful as a people, as a nation, every time they'd gotten wealthy, they forgot Yahweh their God. They forgot their God, they went off into sin. In their success, they went off into sin. And when they were humbled, when they were conquered by other nations and other races, then all of a sudden they wanted to cry out to God. Then all of a sudden they remembered Yahweh their God. And it was too late. And Fabricius is writing, even though he, he may not understand the connection between 1930s Germany and the Old Testament Israelites, he's writing in that same frame of mind that these Germans who had this, this revolutionary um, revival of their nation that these Germans would forget the Christian morality and, and the principles that enabled them to do that. To go back to Fabricius, efforts of this kind are remarkably prevalent at the present time. And in consequence, a certain religious unrest has seized hold of our folk, most disturbing to the peaceful reconstruction of our new Reich, leading, as it does, men's minds astray, and so placing difficulties in the path of national unification. Since this is the situation in which our spiritual life finds itself today, it is all the more necessary to state with simple directness the real attitude adopted by National Socialism towards religion, so nobody gets any confusion and, and might attribute Germany's success to things other than a return to sound Christian morality and sound Christian principles. And that's what Hitler and Fabricius attributed Germany's success to, It is all the more necessary to state with simple directness the real attitude adopted by National Socialism towards religion, and to consider it in detail from every point of view. An exposition such as this, however, 
can only be undertaken by an expert, that is to say, one who is an authority on the subject, and as a researcher has devoted himself to the work of investigating the Christian religion, in short, a theologian, and at the same time, a convinced national socialist. And Fabricius is speaking of himself, saying that he is qualified to make this presentation, and in most respects, and, and he certainly was qualified, even if he was a universalist, even if he, he was a Christian mystic. He saw God, he, he, he had to see God through a, a mystical point of view in order to reconcile these alien religions with the God of the Bible, which is something that the God of the Bible would not stand for, and which is Fabricius's biggest fault. But nevertheless, he understood basic Christian philosophy. He understood sound Christian principles, and comparing that with national socialism, that national socialism, he understood that national socialism was the expression or an expression of Christian philosophical principles, Christian fundamentals. These um, New Age pagans, these Germanic pagans that Hitler, Hitler despised, they have taken these ancient German poetry and they have layered layers of New Age, psychobabble, and humanism, and philosophical bullshit on top of this ancient German poetry. And they claim that it's the original religion of the Germanic people, and that's a lie. That's an absolute lie. It's not historical, what they've done. It's not historical at all. And they reject Christianity based upon what the Jews have told them about Christianity, based upon what the Jews have told them about the Bible. They see it as a Jewish book. They see Christ as a Jew. Anybody should reject Christianity. But they won't take the time to understand when they're told that these things aren't Jewish at all. Actually, the God of the Bible is an anti-Jew. If we consider him and measure him against these people that we understand to be Jews today, and they're not even Jews. They've appropriated the name of Judah for themselves, and they've perverted it into, in, into this idea of Jewishness today. And none of it is, is biblical. It's all perverted. So here, Fabricius is saying that you cannot see the Christianity in National Socialism unless you understand Christianity. So you could say to pagans and, and to these, um, that these New Age freaks and, and these secular National Socialists, you could say Hitler was a Christian. They'll deny that because they don't know the first thing about Christianity. And that's Fabricius's assertion that a Christian theologian has to show you the Christianity and National Socialism, because it certainly was Christian. It was the need for such a treatise that brought me to the fore. He saw the need for this explanation on theological grounds, and that's why he wrote 
positive Christianity in the Third Reich. And he continues by saying, I am conscious of a sense of responsibility to God and to my own conscience, both in my capacity as theological expert on confessional questions and as an evangelical Christian, I felt it incumbent on me to proclaim the truth in all publicity. As an official of the state and as a political leader within the party, I am bound by a twofold oath to the Führer of my folk, but my religious and political duties do not clash, nor do they necessitate any inward struggle. He didn't see any conflict at all between being a Lutheran priest, a Lutheran theologian, and a teacher of Christian theology. He saw no conflict with that and National Socialism. And if you read Mein Kampf, any true Christian, if any true Christian would read Mein Kampf, they should see the same thing if they've studied their Bible. Most of these negative commenters, most of these deniers of Christianity have never studied a Bible and most of them have never even read Mein Kampf. They just repeat the mantras that they've learned from from clowns and, and, and think that they're re- repeating their some sort of gospel. As an official of the state and as a political leader within the party, I am bound by a twofold oath to the Fuhrer of my folk. But my religious duties and political duties do not clash, nor do they necessitate any inward struggle, but rather the one supplements the other, and both stand together in complete harmony. Indeed, they do even more than this. In my own life and thought, Christianity and National Socialism are closely knit together. And just because I am a Christian and a theologian, I felt compelled to put on the brown shirt. Just because my inmost being is filled with the most sacred feeling of responsibility, I have felt for years past a sense of duty towards my folk in its time of distress, meaning the period of the Weimar years. For this reason, therefore, my path had perforce to lead me into the movement which has been called upon these days to rescue my folk from need. My life during the past decisive years has been mapped out accordingly. Conscious of of my responsibility as a Christian and as a professor of theology in the early days when National Socialism was struggling to assert itself, I became one of the founders and pioneers of the Students' Labor Service Corps. Community life, such as I experienced in labor camps with my students and unemployed youth of all classes, 
made me one of Adolf Hitler's most loyal supporters, not primarily through hearing through hearing speeches or reading books and newspapers was I one for the National Socialistic cause, but rather through my experience as an independent leader of the labor camp with all the heavy responsibilities connected with this task that also included strenuous physical work. Thus, I was formed into a national socialist in the smithy or the foundry of life, having become one of the great comradeship, not only with all my heart and mind, but with flesh and blood as well. My own personal attitude, therefore, gives me every right, indeed makes it my duty to publish an expert opinion on the principles of National Socialism. With respect to religion, as an expert, I shall adhere strictly to the facts, having no intention of obtruding any personal theories or pet ideas that might tend to divert attention from the main line of thought. Rather, shall I show with unwavering consistency how the attitude of National Socialism to the Christian religion as evidenced in the party program and in the Fuhrer's own words has been determined both by the substance of the Christian religion and by the substance of National Socialism. It's the substance that matters and not the language and the outward expression. But while keeping my own personal opinions in the background, I shall, on the other hand, also refrain from bringing forward the philosophical ideas or fantastic utterances of other writers who may perhaps have grasped only a part or even nothing at all of the meaning of Christianity or National Socialism, and are thus guilty of a certain dilettantism, particularly dangerous in matters of such serious import. At least of all, and least of all, I am inclined to make use of the views on Welfenschang, or worldview, laid down by these writers also, half converted to National Socialism as they may be, are still partly in the toils of the prejudices of the liberalistic and Marxistic era, being caught up, so to say, in the spirit of those epochs which, known as the ages of reason, romanticism, and techniques, place their mark on European thought from the 18th to the beginning of the 20th century. And that's the biggest obstacle that we even see in many identity Christians into coming to, um, to grips with what Adolf Hitler and National Socialism were all about, but more importantly, what Christianity should be all about. Because they're still caught up in what Fabricius says, the ages of reason, romanticism, and techniques. They're still caught up in a lot of the ideals 
of Jewish liberalism and Jewish capitalism and Jewish romanticism expressed through the media, through the arts, through the television every day that they were raised with and they still haven't overcome that training that they've received by the Jews. And most of the identity Christians I've, I've come into contact with are still stuck in Jewish liberalism, Jewish capitalism, Jewish libertarianism, that this um, false sense of Anglo-American patriotism that the Jews have sold upon us through the media, we don't realize sometimes how programmed a lot of our ideas, that the programming that they still continue to reflect, and, and that entire paradigm has to be overcome, every aspect of it, by identity Christians. The support of statism, the, the support of, uh, of um, the British Empire, for example, in British Israel people and in the Worldwide Church of God, that, that's a... Um, well, when the empire ended, British Israelism became a joke. And it's still a joke. And it's a laughing stock because there's no empire. It was a Christianity that propped up the empire, and the empire propped up British Israelism. And that's not the only, that, that's, the, that, that's the most glaring example for identity Christians in, in how our false paradigm makes the truth look bad because there's a lot of truth in British Israelism, a lot of fantasy, but there's a lot of truth in it. And because they built it on a false idea of legitimizing the British Empire, now it's a laughingstock because there's no more empire. True Christianity can't fail Regardless of what fails in the world, regardless of what happens to the United States, regardless of what happens to the United Nations, a real Christian foundation will never fail. Back to Fabricius. Both forces, however, Christianity as well as National Socialism, will be dealt with by me as present realities more with respect to what they are today than with respect to their historical development and growth. And, and that's another thing that Christians, mainstream Christians especially, love to cling to, that, that if any presentation of Christianity isn't in line with the historical development of, of what they perceive as Christianity, then it can't be true. But in order to understand what real Christianity is, we should strip away all that bullshit we should strip away that historical development of the last 2,000 years and get back to the word of Yahweh in the Bible, the words of Christ in the Gospel, and the words of the apostles after Christ. And they count as Christianity. Nothing the Catholic Church has done counts as Christianity. That only counts as imperialism and tyranny. For in this case, we are not primarily interested in what has been 
meaning the historical development of Christianity. And now is no more the old German Reich. But we wish to, to view the present and from it cast a glance into the future. We do not wish to travel far afield, but prefer to consider what is alive today and close at hand in the revived German Third Reich, in the revived Germany of 1935. This little book was written with the general purpose of assisting in the work of reconstruction and of promoting peace and unanimity. My exposition has perhaps its combative side too, but that is simply in order to clear up misunderstandings and smooth away difficulties. Where, where I am polemical, it is absolutely impersonal. Least of all would I attack fellow Christians and National Socialistic comrades. I fight against thoughts only, but here too, not against systems of thought expounded in literary work of one kind or another, but I attack those ideas that are so as to say in the air and make their influence more or less strongly felt or give hints of it only in existing trends of thought. Such is the thought underlying my treatment of the question of positive Christianity as the foundation of National Socialism. It has been found advisable to divide the exposition itself into two main parts. The first subject of investigation to be dealt with concerns the National Socialistic policy with respect to religion. Conclusions will thereby be drawn from the party program applicable to the general attitude of the party and the state towards church life. In a second exposition, the inner associations will be treated of and it will be shown how the spiritual forces of Christianity must needs have great influence, must needs have a great influence in the life of the newly awakened German folk. Christianity was essential to the awakened German nation. With this, we will commence with part one, the religious policy of National Socialism. where Fabricius writes, to forestall all misconceptions, we must show what religious policy would contradict the very essence of National Socialism before we judge of what is meant by the affirmation of Christianity in National Socialism. Therefore, the first part of the text to positive Christianity in the Third Reich is part one, the religious policy of National Socialism, what we reject. And under what we reject, the first item found is liberalism. The whole attitude of National Socialism shows a striking difference on comparison with all 
that is to be included in the name of liberalism. Every singling out of human individuals, every separation of interests, meaning dividing classes, confusion of opinions, every irregular appearance of selfish interests, and that goes with the singling out of human individuals. The Jews love to promote a star culture. They do it all the time. The cults of personality. That's what Fabricius is referring to here. Every irregular appearance of selfish interests, everything that calls forth and emphasizes differences between individuals and between various groups is repellent to the spirit of national socialism. Since it disturbs the unity of the folk, breaks up the team spirit, and menaces the powerful solidarity of the nation. And that's the, um, that essence of national socialism is highly Christian. It's the denial of the ego for the sake of the nation. It's the denial of the self for the sake of your brethren. A lot of these aspects in, in this rejection of liberalism are seen in American policy today. But American policy today, where we don't um, discriminate based on an individual status, American policy today is artificial because it's based upon the idea that people of different races and nations can be equals in the same nation. And that's an artificial construct. It's directly adverse to the meaning of what a nation truly is. The difference with National Socialism and with Christianity is that all these things work in a homogenous national unit. That's the difference. These things can't work with as different races of people who can't ever be equal. And least of all, would it be compatible with National Socialism were a form of religious liberalism to find a place in Germany? That is to say, the springing up of several hundreds or thousands of religious societies all at liberty to represent not only the tradi old traditional teachings, but also strange and questionable doctrines, and to abuse and accuse one another of heresy. A religious liberalism of this kind would be far more dangerous than liberalism in secular affairs because religion always lays claim to the whole individual and shuts off the individual person and individual groups from the world outside far more completely than do secular interests. And let me say in this regard, and, and I don't have the quotes with me, I think I have them somewhere in these notes, but I don't have them at hand. Adolf Hitler understood that the denominational religions of Germany, meaning the Lutheran and the, and the Catholic, he understood that they were working against the interests of the nation. And he understood that they shouldn't be doing that. So while he didn't want to create 
50,000 different, he didn't want to see the creation of 50,000 different little Christian sects that all disagreed on certain things. He didn't want that. He wanted to avoid that. He nevertheless wanted to compel the major denominations, the Lutheran and the Catholic, to compel them to serve the interests of the German people. And he very much disdained the fact that they didn't. And he even talked in Mein Kampf about how they would rather spend all their resources helping niggers than helping their, their poor fellow Germans. And we see that in America today with all these denominations. We have 50,000 different denominations. We have this religious liberalism, and now we have 50,000 denominations that do the whim of the Jew and, and, and spend all their time supporting and, and trying to prop up Negroes and to hell with poor white people. So what we have here in America, the, the shape of Christianity here in America is exactly what Adolf Hitler sought to prevent in Germany. He wanted the Christian denominations to work for the good of the German people. And that attitude is as we shall see before the series ends, it might take a while, that attitude is entirely Christian. For this reason, therefore, the religious policy of National Socialism is absolutely opposed to the principle pronouncing religion to be a private affair, laid down by the Social Democrats, that's how that goes in with the divide and conquer method, and which was derived from liberalistic ideas in the hope of dealing a blow at the power of religion by breaking up the churches into private societies. In national socialistic Germany, religion is not a private matter at all. It concerns the whole folk. True, one can ascribe the religious policy of national socialism to the utterance of Frederick the Great. Here, each must be saved after his own fashion. But these words spoken by the great king and which were to become proverbial referred only to the peaceful intercourse between the evangelical and Roman Catholic Christians in his country and must not be understood to mean an unbridled liberalism. And just like Thomas Jefferson's words are corrupted by the enemies of Christ all the time so that they can undermine Christianity Evidently, they were doing it to Frederick the Great as well. But again, it must not be argued here that the party program itself allows liberty to all religious beliefs. Religious liberty there most certainly is in the national socialistic state. This does not mean, however, that a wild growth of private religious opinions and a breaking up of the churches into groups is desirable. What is implied is this. No one is forced in the Third Reich to adopt any form of religion. And again, no one is to be compelled by the state to join any one of the great churches or to withdraw from it. Finally, it implies that within a religious body, the many individuals who go to form it are not to be confined within the narrow limits of some form of belief. On the contrary, as everywhere in the newly awakened German folk, powers are allowed free play 
those with creative personalities in particular being permitted to develop freely and vigorously. So within the great churches, as in every religious community, the characteristic features of personal piety will not be suppressed, but will be given every opportunity for vigorous development insofar as they do not sow the seeds of discord or cause confusion of mind and so prove a menace to the spirit of unanimity prevailing in the folk. In other words, you could have different religious opinions of many, certain, of many aspects of, of Scripture and life within the church as long as everybody sought to avoid discord amongst the body of the people and abide by basic moral principles. So we could have disagreement within the same church, but we couldn't have 50,000 different churches. That's what the Third Reich sought to avoid. But the anti-liberalistic attitude of National Socialism in matters pertaining to religion has another aspect. The liberal era had a favorite scheme and sought to realize it in various ways. It was separation of church and state. And, and of course, Thomas Jefferson and, and the founders never advocated separation of Christianity and state, state. And Thomas Jefferson never said that there should be separation of church and state. It's not found in the Constitution. If we look at ancient Israel and, and, and the theocracy that Yahweh God himself set up in the judges period, everybody was expected to be a Christian. I will call those people Christians for the sake of this presentation. Old Testament followers of Yahweh God are Christians looking forward to Christ according to the scriptures. Judaism is a perversion of Christianity. It's not the forerunner to Christianity by any means. Judaism is a fork. Judaism is a left turn in the road. Judaism is a corruption. Hebrewism is Christianity before Christ. The religion of the Old Testament is Christianity before Christ, and we see the models handed down to us by God himself do not allow for separation of Christianity and state. Christ is the state, and we all must be Christians. That's the end game. And, of course, the other races are excluded. They were never included. This catchword, separation of church and state, this catchword was not only based on the idea of the individual and private nature of religion, but also on the view that a distinct line must be drawn between religion and secular culture. This universal letting loose of individual interests resulted in a splitting up of culture in, that, in its various domains and a limited, one-sided devotion of individuals and groups of individuals to special cultural spheres. Indeed, these divisions in cultural life 
even led individuals in their philosophy of life to specialize in one particular domain of culture, whereby all other spheres were either rejected or looked upon as of no importance. Thus, there arose the practical materialism or utilitarianism of Marx and his followers, which only acknowledged techno-economical culture as of any value. There, there were others, art lovers, to whom only the world of beauty meant anything at all, and who, engrossed by it, had lost all understanding for other things. There were men of science and circles of intelligentsia who only appreciated intellect, despising everything else. There were humane moralists in whose eyes the highest value of all was the moral or right relationship between man and man who were only slightly interested, or not at all, in the other spheres of life. This condition of separate and limited standpoints must also include the principle separation of church and state. For this phrase may be so interpreted as to mean that occupation with things temporal is to be separated from occupation with things spiritual, because it is thought that the bulk of mankind is engrossed with temporal things, and does not concern itself with what is sacred. And if one goes on to presuppose that the state is without religion, that is to say, it concerns itself chiefly with secular interests, the principle may be inferred, separation of church and state. This principle, however, is totally opposed to the nature of national socialism. It's also opposed to Christianity. The whole meaning of the new life in Germany as revealed in National Socialism is man's desire to leave behind him the gulfs and schisms in cultural spheres, all the specialization, mutual distrust, suspicion and hostility, and to form instead an organic, living, coordinated culture which, notwithstanding its manyfoldness, is yet permeated with the one spirit common to all. The various spheres of culture must naturally be differentiated. We are fully aware that the physically useful in technico-economical culture is different from the aesthetic beautiful. And again, that the investigation of truth is a thing by itself, just as is the care for the community of mankind. Also, that religion as the surrender to the superhuman life of the Godhead differentiates itself from all connections and activities which bind us to human and temporal things. But at the same time, we know that the differentiation between the spheres of life must on no account mean a severance or schism, but that they have their common roots and foundations in human nature, and in the nature of things, and are further united and interwoven by countless reciprocal effects. And the national socialistic state is no pagan, holding aloof from the church as if from the sphere of what is sacred. On the contrary, the state is the lawful organization of the living folk, of the same folk that possesses the whole of temporal culture, and with it, religion. In the folk, too, the organization of the state must naturally be in living reciprocal connection with the organizations of all the other spheres of culture, including the church. From the standpoint of National Socialism, therefore, it is impossible to assert 
that the new movement has nothing to do with religion owing to its political character, and that the state must stand aloof, not concerning itself with ecclesiastical matters, just as the church keeps aloof from state affairs. A religious policy with this in view as its basic principle would remind one of the French Revolution in the 18th century, but certainly not of the national uprising in Germany in the year 1933. A policy of aloofness and alienation with regard to the relations between church and state would indeed be most disastrous. It would open up a fatal chasm between church folk and the worldly-minded and cause a front to be formed at least as dangerous, if not more so, than the former gulf between the bourgeois and the proletariat. And moreover, in a church obscured from the light of publicity, dark places would be created where, under the protecting mantle of sacred things, revolutionary elements could foregather and threaten the German folk and all that it holds sacred with dissolution and destruction. And we, because of separation of church and state, we've seen that same thing happen here over and over again in American culture and politics. And we see a, a state that's become absolutely godless and antithetical to Christ. While it takes advantage of the, that the Christians who are deceived by Jews in order to use them for its own advantage in its wars overseas. From volume one, chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, because Hitler wanted to preserve Christianity, but he did not want to change what was authentically Christian. From volume one, chapter 12 of Mein Kampf, the movement steadfastly refuses to take up any stand in regard to those problems which are either outside of its sphere of political work or seem to have no fundamental importance for us. It does not aim at bringing about a religious reformation, but rather a political reorganization of our people. It looks upon the two religious denominations as equally valuable mainstays for the existence of our people, and it means the Lutheran and the Roman Catholic. It looks upon the two religious denominations as equally valuable mainstays for the existence of our people. And therefore, it makes war on all those parties which would degrade this foundation on which the religious and moral stability of our people is based to an instrument in the service of party interests. Hitler wouldn't stand on turning the churches against each other or on anybody debasing the foundation of Christianity upon which those churches rested, even though we understand that they were very imperfect in many ways. And Hitler also understood that they were imperfect. And we will talk about that more next week here when we present part two of Positive Christianity of our presentation 
of positive Christianity in the Third Reich. And we will continue with Caius Fabricius's discussion concerning attacks on Christianity in part two of his portion of the book entitled What We Reject. Thank you for being here. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night.